Today we'll be going back into the epistle of James. We'll be uh, concluding James chapter 2 today. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. And I want to uh, start by saying here at Calvary, here at Calvary, we proudly declare and we do not shrink that we stand with the reformers of old in declaring that salvation is by faith alone, by, through, uh, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And we hold that Scripture alone has all authority. Scripture alone has all authority. And God gets the glory alone. He doesn't share it with man. He gets the glory alone. This is known as the five solas of the Reformation. It was this creed. It was this, these truths that the Reformation fathers held to, that Martin Luther held to, that the Apostle Paul declared in his great epistles. And it is the central truth of the Bible. It is the central truth contained in the Bibles. And within these truths are the sacred doctrine of justification by faith. Simply put, how can a sinful person be made right before a holy and righteous God? That's it. And we maintain that that is by faith in the finished work of Christ alone, by the grace afforded by Christ. And we maintain that it is indeed in Christ alone. And the key word there, the emphasis there is alone. We don't add anything else to it. It's the work of Christ alone. And there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can purchase. There isn't a religious, religious ritual that we can perform that would make us right before the eyes of God. It is completely and wholly through the finished work of Christ on the cross which is why we hold dearly to the Holy Week, why we hold dearly to Calvary, while we hold dearly to the atonement that was made on the cross on that Good Friday. Romans 3.28 makes this perfectly clear. Paul writes, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. To Titus, Paul wrote this, but when the kindness and goodness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And here comes the clincher. Not according to deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. These verses in the Holy Scripture speak to a great doctrine of justification of faith. Read the epistle of Romans. It's about justification of faith. Read the epistle of Galatians. It's about justification by faith. Read the epistle of Ephesians. It's about justification by faith. This is the central truth. This is what we preach. This is what the disciples preached, the apostles preached, the early church fathers preached. Now, we've been studying this chapter 2 of James. And James, as I've been saying to you for the longest time, it talks about what does living, active, biblical faith in Christ look like. 
That's the whole central theme that runs through. And James answers that by saying it's by faith. Faith in trials. Faith in testings. Faith when, when, um, when we stumble upon certain situation. It has to be living. It has to be an active faith. And he does so by making the point, and this is the key point to maintain, that true saving faith demonstrates evidence of a life that has been touched by the work of Christ. What is the evidence? The believer in Christ produces good works, works of righteousness and proof of the work of redemption that is in the believer's life. It's very easy to say you're a Christian. It's the easiest thing in the world. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But if you say you're a Christian and your life does not align to the truth, if your life does not demonstrate effectively works that bring glory and honor to God, James would say, as we've seen in the last few weeks, that's nothing but an empty profession. That's all that is. And James says that those professions of faith, such as I'm saved or I'm a Christian, if it doesn't produce the evidence, is dead is the term he used. Necros, it's dead. No life. It's useless is another term that James uses. James even looks at the idea of, well, I hold orthodox beliefs. I have sound doctrine. James says, as a matter of fact, we saw that last week. In verses 14, 17, and 20, he says, hey, that's great. He says, you believe? That's great. Hey, I'll tell you what else. The demons believe, and they tremble. So orthodox belief without the evidence of works, he would say, is also something that demonstrates a dead faith. And I want to be clear with this because as we jump into the word of God today, we're going to see this. James does not contradict the doctrine of salvation. He does not contradict justification by faith alone. But in, instead, James is discussing the outcome of that faith. It's the outcome of that faith. It's the byproduct. Jesus used the word fruit. He said a good tree cannot produce bad uh, fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It's the byproduct of faith. So James is not contending the means of faith. James is saying good, living, biblical faith produces something. And that's evidence. That's works of righteousness. So I entitled this message today, A Living Faith and Good Works. <laughs> A Living Faith and Good Works. To show the corollary between works and faith. And to see that righteous works will result from a genuine faith. John Calvin has a great statement, and John Calvin says this. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies 
is never alone. Faith that justifies is never alone. It's always going to give evidence. It's always going to show proof. Now, there's two, two burdens I have on my heart as I preach this message, and I want to share them with you. First one, we must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right because there have been years and years and years of erosion of true biblical doctrine and the word of God. And we must know the truth of God's word and we must declare it and we must preach it with authority. And my heart for this church from day one to the present day is that God would give me the grace to preach truth and to preach it boldly and to preach it unashamed. That's the first burden I have on my heart. There's a second burden that we must realize that to be a Christian, if we call ourselves a believer, if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, that it is a matter of the heart. It is not a matter of the mouth. It is a matter of the heart, and specifically of a redeemed heart, of a changed heart, of a heart that beats and pants after God. We cannot be indifferent to God. We cannot be indifferent to the things of God. The redeemed heart has a heart for God. And so we begin to examine ourselves before the word of God. That's what I do. I want people to go home and say, well, the scriptures were presented this way. Is this true? And if it is true, what must I do? So let me share something with you. There are no brownie points for attending. Right? You don't get goodie points for attend. You come to hear the word of God. And the word of God should pierce your heart. And it pierces your heart in many different ways. It pierces your heart sometimes with deep exhortation, deep praise. I felt that this morning in, in, in Sunday school, just reading the words of God, reading the glory of God, knowing that we're made in the image of God, filled my heart with such joy overflowing, and we were all like, what a mighty God we serve. That's one way the Spirit pierces the heart. The Word pierces the heart. There's another way. He pierces the heart through conviction. He pierces the heart saying, wait, wait, wait a second. This is what the word of God says. I, I'm not in line with the word of God. I must therefore get conformed to the word of God because every word, every jot, every tittle is true. And so my heart is that we would know truth and we would respond to truth and we would examine ourselves against the truth so look with me at the epistle of james chapter 2 beginning with verse 21 and i'll read verses 21 through 26 was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up isaac his son on the altar you see that faith was working with his works 
And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In verse 21 in the previous verse, James made the point that faith without works is an empty, useless, dead faith. The lack of evidence, the lack of fruit, the works of righteousness, of the lack of evidence of the saving grace of Jesus Christ would indicate that. It would indicate that. But we should begin here by stating that James does not contradict the means of salvation being faith alone. Again, what is the epistle of James? It's about faith, living, active, biblical faith, what it should look like. But instead, James is discussing the outcome of faith or the evidence of salvation. What does James mean here in verse 21 when he says that Abraham was justified by works? We maintain he's not contradicting the historic doctrine of justification by faith. The word justified has two meanings. It has two meanings in the Greek. The first meaning means to be declared righteous. It's a it's a judicial declaration. God is on the throne, and God says, I declare that person righteous. It's a judicial ruling. That's the first meaning. We see this in Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. God has made the judicial declaration because of the work of faith that Mary, Bob, Jim, whomever, is declared right in the eyes of God. That's its first meaning. But there is a second meaning to this verb. And the second meaning means vindication, a proof of righteousness, an evidence of righteousness. And the context in which James is using the word here, justified, he's talking about Abraham's faith being vindicated. It's being vindicated. It is proven. And how is it proven? It is proven through good works. Now, there's, there's two primary scripture texts that shed light on Abraham's faith. The first one is found in Romans 4, what we use for our scripture reading, and we'll be turning there in just a moment. And the other one is used in Hebrews chapter 11. In Romans 4, Paul elaborates on Abraham's faith and how Abraham's means of salvation, his faith in God, was by faith alone. In Romans 3.20, again, Paul makes a, a, a very clear statement. Paul states this, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, 
For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There isn't a work. There isn't a deed. There isn't anything. You know the difference between historic biblical Christianity and all the other religions of the world? It's simply this. Look at any other of the religions of the world. They will tell you what you must do to earn salvation. It is only historic, reform, biblical Christianity that would say there's nothing that you can do to earn the favor of God. It is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. In Romans 3.28, I read to you, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So Paul lays it out. How are we justified? How are we declared right before the sight of God? We are declared right before the sight of God by an act of faith by God himself. Now Paul, in Romans chapter 4, shows us the example of Abraham. This is big, by the way, that James is referring to Abraham. Because why? Abraham is the father of all, right? So follow with me in Romans chapter 4. I just want to show you some scripture here so that we get the overall context of what he's talking about. Romans 4.2. Romans 4.2. Notice the words of Paul. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. There's the first one. If Abraham's justification, if Abraham's salvation before God came as a result of works, then he would have a reason to boast. You hear a little bit of sarcasm in, the, in Paul's tone, tone right? He, he would have a reason to boast. But what does he say? Not before God. He can't boast before God. Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. To the one who doesn't work for it, for the one who earns the, uh, scratch that, for the one who receives the grace of God, who receives the faith of God, what does he say? It's not a wage. It's not a wage. If you work, you get a wage. But he says in 4 or 5, but the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Romans 4.17, speaking of Abraham. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. He's quoting the Old Testament here, Genesis 15.6. In the sight of him who believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Romans 4.22, in response to the faith of Abraham, therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's been reckoned to him as righteousness. What has been reckoned? By the word, it reckoned, that word reckoned means to, to charge to one's account. He's charged to one's account. It's imputed. It's imputed righteousness. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It makes a great illustration of this. And I, I probably quote this verse more than any other vo verse. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So we see Abraham. We see Abraham's illustration. 
The writer of Hebrews comments further on this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 17. And we'll look at verses 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. We know the story, right? What happened? When he's a young man, God calls, he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham was not a Jew either. He was a Chaldean. Ur is a city in southern Iraq. So he calls, he calls him. And he calls him out. He said, hey, I want you to follow me. I'm going to take you to a land you don't know. And Abraham obeys. And he goes. And God makes a covenant with him. He says, look at the stars. Genesis 15, 6. Look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. You know what happens to Abraham? Time marches on. And he turns 70. He turns 80. No kids. No kids. As a matter of fact, that name Abram means father of many. Right? No children, no children. Turns 90. No children. Sarah, way past child-rearing years. No children. God keeps telling them, hey, can you count the sands on the seashore? So shall your descendants be. So shall your descendants be. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham believed God. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver even in his 90s. At 99 years old, Sarah's about 90, which is really a miracle. She conceives a child. She bears a child. The child's name is Isaac. Isaac means laughter because Sarah doubted the promise of God and was laughing when she heard God talking to Abraham. And the Bible tells us that Abraham loved Isaac. He loved him. When Isaac's about 13, 14, 15 years old, we don't know the exact date, God awakens Abraham to a vision and says, here's what I want you to do now. I want you to head to the, the Mount of Moriah. And there I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him up to me as a sacrifice. Can you imagine that? This is the one you've been waiting for for your entire life, and God says, I want him. You're going to offer him to me as a sacrifice. And the Bible says that Abraham does exactly as he is told. He packs up his servants. He heads to the mountain of Moriah. He gets there. He tells the servants, you guys stay behind. Me and the lad are going to go forward. We're going to build the sacrifice. And Isaac's getting a little bit hip to the idea that I see the wood, I see the stone. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? 
And Abraham says a prophetic word that I don't even think he even realized. He said, God himself will provide the lamb. And by the way, on Mount Moriah, God provided the lamb twice. He binds his son. By the way, you should know that Isaac did not resist. He binds his son, lays him on the altar, takes a knife of flint, rears it back, and is ready to thrust the knife in his only son's chest when the angel of the Lord stays his hand, calls out to him, says, Abraham, do not touch the lad. Look over there. There's a ram in the thicket. For now God knows that you love him and his life is spared. Many years later on that same Mount Moriah, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world will go up that very same mountain on Mount Moriah and will be broken apart for the sins of all who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. But Abraham believed God. It was his faith that was able to say, Father, if you said take my son and offer him up, I can't figure out how you're going to do it. I have no idea what's going to happen. You have the authority to bring the dead back to life. I will be obedient. You see, his faith preceded the works. His faith preceded the works. His faith was consummated, perfected in the very work of obedience. Look, go back to James chapter 2. Look at verses 22 and 23. James writes, You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. I love verse 22. Verse 22 is a great verse. In these two verses, James makes two important points. He states that faith works in partnership with works. He says it right there. Clearly, you see his faith was working with his works. This is the point that James has been making all along. Saving faith produces righteous work. And that was evident in Abraham. That is exactly the point. He's not contending the means of salvation. He is saying that if you are saved, you will produce something. And that something will give evidence to Christ in you. Paul calls it Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the hope of every Christian? It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. What is the hope of every Christian? That because Christ is in me, he will bring me to where he is. Therefore, I have a future hope. I have an eternal hope, a hope that cancer can't take away, a hope that a heart attack can't take away, a hope that COVID can't take away. They cannot take away the hope that if I were to be riddled with cancer, that upon my death, because of that hope, that faith in Christ, I will leave this body and I will be in the presence of the Lord. And that's the hope of every single believer. 
And that hope is manifested. It is not designed that we would live solitary lives giving no glory, no evidence to God. That is bad theology. It is bad doctrine that has gone on in this country way too long. If you are saved, Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, Christ will be made manifest. And he will be made manifest in faith and faith will produce good works. That's how it works. Notice in verse 22, James says, as a result of his works, faith was perfected. That word there for perfected means it's consummated. It's brought forth. It's made evident. It's completed. You know, it's an interesting thing. Verse 23 says, Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's an interesting thing. When did that happen? Did it happen on Mount Moriah? Did, did he get an epiphany at Mount Moriah and say, oh, there truly is a God? It happened when he believed God in his earlier years that he would be the father of many nations. It was there he believed God in Genesis 15, 6. When God said, behold the stars, can you count them? They're innumerable, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God. He held to that belief. And subsequently, everything he did that followed was a result of that faith. This is an important point. Although Abraham's faith in God demonstrated it on Mount Moriah through the offering of his son, this is critical, folks. Realize that faith always comes first. You cannot do any work of righteousness. Listen to me well. There are no works of righteousness that you... Listen, you could give every day of your life to feeding the poor and handing out $10 bills on the corner to all the disadvantaged people and helping old ladies cross the street. All that work, if you are not redeemed, if you are not saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, is works that are filthy rags. Oh, they're good in a human context. I'm not demeaning that. And in a cultural context, they have value. But all of that, if you don't have faith in Christ, will not save you. It will not save your soul. It will not give you new life. In Christ. Righteousness. God's righteousness. Was charged to Abraham's account. Because of. Abraham's faith. Now I want to point out something here. That's important. I want you to notice. He's showing Abraham as an example. Why? 
because Abraham's faith was not solitary. It didn't remain with him. But there was fruit, there was works that came out that gave glory to God. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. I want to stop here for a moment, and I want us to consider the impact of this. What does this mean to us? We are far removed from Abraham. We're far removed from, we're far removed from Calvary. What does it mean? James writes that faith without works is a dead faith. He uses the example of Abraham. He's shown us that saving faith produces righteous results. And these results, these works demonstrate to the world that we belong to Christ. Now we must ask ourselves, so is there evidence in my life Are there righteous works being produced as a byproduct of my faith in Jesus Christ? Is there a genuineness? Are there works that testify to the genuineness of my faith? Or I merely proclaim with my mouth that I'm a Christian? Let me share something else. If you are an habitual, if you are practicing habitually sin, whatever it may be, you know and God knows what that sin is. You could profess all you want. Sin does not give evidence of a life of faith with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about perfection. We all stumble and fall. But if you're clinging to something that you refuse to repent of, then you need to bring that before the Lord. Remember the words of James in James 2, 19? He addresses the one who says, look, I got really good doctrine. I got orthodox faith. He said, you believe, you do well. The demons believe and they tremble. And you know what the difference is? As I've said this time and time again, many people profess Christ and believe, and they don't tremble at, at the thought of God at all. Church, listen, we need to heed these truths. We really need to heed these truths. Do not place your faith and trust for your eternal soul in anything other than Jesus Christ. Don't do it. Saving faith produces righteousness. Saving faith produces a love for Christ, a passion for Christ, a desire for prayer, a hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, and a love for Christ's church. This is what is produced by saving faith. And I'll give you the opposite. Indifference toward Christ, toward the church, toward the word of God and prayer, indifference to living out one's life in faith, and a lack of evidence or a lack of righteous works, listen, we can conclude very safely, these are not byproducts. These are not the outcome of saving faith, no matter what you profess. You can say you're a Christian. 
If you're indifferent toward Christ, if you don't have time for prayer, if you don't study the Word of God, let me tell you something. You should have a caution upon you. And you should go before the Lord and cry out and say, Father, come into my life in reality. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. And if you know this today, what stops you from placing your faith and trust and completely in Christ? This is, this is life and death. Do you get this? It's life and death. Turn to Christ, repent from your sins, entrust yourself completely to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Cry out to God for mercy and he will indeed save. Let's look at verse 24. James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And here's the question, justified by works? Now you might say, Pastor, James says it right there. That works, that faith saves us. That works save us and not faith. And I'll tell you two things. First, verse 24 does not stand alone. What is king to biblical interpretation? Context, context, context is king. So the first thing we know is that we cannot just extract this verse from its respective context and then build a theology around it, which many have done. That's the first thing I'm going to tell you. Second thing, James is correct. Saving faith never stands alone, as John Calvin said. And righteous works always accompany it. As James contextually stated in verse 22, faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was consummated. It was perfected. It was finalized. And it's worth noting here that James also uses an example of faith, although briefly, Rahab the harlot. Rahab, who lived in Jericho, that the spies went out and met. And she took the spies in because the king of Jericho put a hit on the spies. And she said, I've come to know that the Lord is God. And you have to make an agreement with me that when you people come in and conquer this place, that you're going to spare me and my father's family. She had entrusted herself by faith to a God she knew very little about, but she had entrusted him. Faith caused her to save the spies. What came first? Faith came first. Works followed. Simply put, as I've been saying all along, righteous works give evidence of one's faith in Jesus Christ. And to prove this, we move to verse 26. Verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith and works go together. As Paul clearly stated, 
In Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And as we saw in Abraham, in God's calling, he believed God. It was reckoned, it was charged to his account as righteousness. Likewise, all who come to faith in Jesus Christ will defend their faith before the world And how do they do that? Through deeds of righteousness, through fruits of righteousness, through good works of righteousness. And listen, Paul put the capstone on this in Ephesians 2.10 when he wrote, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works that God had foreordained that we should walk in. I started out by saying over the past 70 years, the gospel has been proclaimed that states that all one has to do to gain eternal life is agree with specific facts about the gospel. Either facts about the gospel, facts about God, facts about Christ. And that if you repeat after me, or if you say this prayer, will result in salvation. And in this definition of the gospel, salvation is merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's all that it results in. But nothing can be further than the truth. Nothing. Biblical saving faith is being born again. Born from heaven. Born of the Spirit. The believer is regenerated. The believer is made new, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The believer has been justified, declared by a great God and king as righteous before God. Our sins have been judged, and they have been judged in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We have been given God's righteousness Christ's righteousness has been given to the believers hey it's a scriptural truth look at Jeremiah 31 you don't have to turn there Jeremiah 31 33 and 34 when you have go home and have time but the prophet says of the believer that the believer is given a new heart with a law of God written on it gone is the dead heart of stone we've been given a heart of flesh Believers have been given a new desire, desires for God, desires for Christ. Believers have been given a thirst for righteousness to serve and obey God, a longing for communion with God, and to do the things that are pleasing in God's sight. That has been given to us by God. God says, I will put a new heart, a new spirit inside the believer. All of that is made possible by saving faith. True, living, biblical faith. And what follows that? Works of righteousness. Deeds of righteousness. A life of holiness. A life of conformity to the things of God. A turning back on the things, turning your back on the things of the world. Marching heaven-bound. I'll close with this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this statement, which I love. 
To be a Christian is not only to believe the teaching of Christ and to practice it. It is not only to try and follow the pattern and the example of Christ. Listen to these words. It is to be so vitally related to Christ that his life and his power are working in us. It is to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. As Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is true, living, biblical faith. Let's bow in a word of prayer.